evening. Welcome to this week's episode of Where Peter Is Live. I'm your host, Rachel Amiri. I am production editor at wherepeteris.com. Um, on this weekly live stream, our panel of contributors and guests takes a closer look at topics we've been covering on the site, and we just kind of catch up with the most recent news. On this episode, we're joined by a guest contributor um, for the first time. I'm going to bring everyone on so you can see them. <laughs> we have Malcolm Schwunderfritz. Um, here to discuss his recent post on the alleged failure of Vatican II and the barriers to the council's reception and its full implementation by the church. Malcolm hosts his own podcast and his own website called Happy Are You Poor? It's a blog and podcast dedicated to discussing radical Christian community as a means of evangelization. And he works as a graphic design assistant and horticulturalist in Littleton, Colorado. So you're joining us from Colorado. Welcome, Malcolm. Yeah, thanks for having me on. And we're also joined this week by our regular contributor, Adam Rasmussen, a theologian and adjunct professor at Georgetown University in the Department of Theology and Religious Studies. He has a PhD from the Catholic University of America and specializes in historical theology and early Christianity. And he's been writing a series on unpacking Vatican II on our website, where Peter is. We're wrapping up Dei Verbum shortly. Correct, Adam? Yeah. Yep. Final post. Hi, everybody. <laughs> All right, here. we have Mike here this week again, too. Say hello. Hi, everyone. Thank you. Um, thank you, everyone, for um, the prayers for uh, my family and for my sister. Um, I, I saw the show last week, and, and Dan, and you guys prayed for her. She had just passed away that day, and uh, we laid her to rest on Tuesday, and it was a, you know, it was a beautiful day. It was a beautiful funeral. Um, having a brother as a priest kind of makes, um, you know, the homily was, was very personal and it was a very intimate gathering. So just thank you everyone for, for your prayers and your support. Well, I'm so glad that you're back with us this week and we're still praying for you. So it's always tough. Okay. So we're going to open today's show with a prayer. Um, it's just to guide our conversation, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We stand before you, Holy Spirit, conscious of our sinfulness, but aware that we gather in your name. Come to us, remain with us, and enlighten our hearts. Give us light and strength to know your will, to make it our own, and to live it in our lives. Guide us by your wisdom, support us by your power, for you are God, sharing the glory of Father and Son. You desire justice for all. Enable us to uphold the rights of others. Do not allow us to be misled by ignorance or corrupted by fear or favor. Unite us to yourself in the bond of love and keep us faithful to all that is true. As we gather in your name, may we temper justice with love so that all our discussions and reflections may be pleasing to you and earn the reward promised to good and faithful servants. We ask this of you who live and reign with the Father and the Son, one God, forever and ever. Amen. 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 All right. Well, thanks for joining us for the first time, Malcolm. Yeah, you're welcome. I'm glad to be here. How are things in Colorado? Is it? Uh, did you have snow recently, or are you not up in the mountains where? No, we're we're in the foothills, and we had snow fairly recently, but uh, it's been about a couple of weeks now since we had enough snow. <laughs> a couple of weeks in May. Yeah. Well, that's, that's usual. Yeah, I'm not sure I could deal with that, but. <laughs> Um, so you host a podcast and this website called Happy Are You Poor? And it's about forming intentional Christian community um, as a means of evangelization. So what what inspired you to start that effort? Yeah, so um, a few years ago, actually uh, maybe five or six years ago now, I started getting interested in the Catholic discussion around intentional community. Obviously, the book The Benedict Option came out. And so suddenly community formation was, you know, a hot topic as it perhaps hadn't been for a long time. The last time Catholics were really interested in community was back when the uh, charismatic communities were uh, getting started. And uh, I started discussing these topics with friends and it, it struck me that one aspect that was being missed in the discussion was the connection between, uh, forming intentional community and evangelizing to the world. Uh, in some circles, there, those two aspects were being um, set in opposition to one another, as if you either retreated from the world 
into some sort of intentional community and focused your efforts on that community, or you went out to the world. And in the Gospels, there's definitely a community being formed, and you see it come into action in the Acts of the Apostles, but it's a community that is for evangelization. And as a matter of fact, uh, as I looked at it, I realized that without community, evangelization won't work. So rather than something that could be pitted against one another, they're integral aspects of one another. And then also I started to realize that, well, we really need community. Um, a bad community could be worse than no community. Uh, communities can be disasters in a lot of ways. And so, you know, I felt like I didn't have the answers to these questions. My friends didn't have the answers. Where, you know, could we find the answers? So I started the website actually to create a discussion about uh, these topics. And I came to realize that the people who would really have these answers are the people who have lived in communities for a long time. So one of the big focuses of our project is to interview community members, especially from long-term communities, ideally from a range of viewpoints, uh, so that they can share their wisdom so that we don't have to reinvent the wheel and to provide some inspiration, you know, to show people what is possible. And then also the other aspect that I really wanted to focus on is a connection of community life with a real radical living out of the gospel, because otherwise community can sort of be, uh, you know, Catholic white flight, uh, a Catholic <laughs> suburbia, um, which is the opposite of the gospel message. So if we're going to be effective in evangelizing through community, that community really needs to live out Christ's message in a radical and a full way. Yeah, that tie with poverty and ensuring that we don't just have like Catholic suburbia seems really important. And a lot of the recent efforts that we've seen at community formation have kind of taken shape. At least the one I'm most familiar with recently is this attempt in Texas to build a place called Veritatis Splendor. And it does kind of look like a big subdivision with an, an overbearing HOA is kind of how I'm <laughs> imagining it. <laughs> um, but you can have statues. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and a high fence, probably. <laughs> yeah, but it seems like um, a lot of groups that tend <clears throat> to organize around just an ideology, they miss that in the fabric of how you arrange your community or live your community. Um, if you're not like practicing this radical poverty, then you're going to be dragged away from maybe the exact virtues that you're, you're saying you're trying to promote. Right. And that's why I chose uh, Father Dubay's book. I named my website after Father Dubay's book, Happy Are You Poor? Uh, because that book really had a, a big impact on me. Uh, he really lays it out very well to show that gospel poverty is not an extra. It's a calling for all Christians. And that will look different in different people's lives. Uh, it shouldn't mm -hmm. look like, uh, you know, living out, uh, you know, in a box on the street if you've got a family, for instance. But it's essential. And it's not just detachment from goods. As he says, for us weak human beings, possessing always becomes being possessed in the end. So, you know, if, if poverty is a real part of the gospel message, it's so difficult to live out because I was talking to a friend and we were talking about this idea of security in, in the gospels uh, when the, there's the rich fool with his barns full of grain and God shows up and, and says, you fool this night, I demand your life. And yet we're all storing up savings accounts. We're trying to prepare for retirement. We're trying to stock up. And that just seems natural. It even seems virtuous in our culture. And poverty is the opposite. You know, like how, how would that work? And I, so I realized that without community, poverty is almost impossible, that the gospel message of poverty is being addressed to a group who are told to provide security for one another. And we see that happening already in Acts, where they pool their money so that the poorer members don't fall through the cracks. And at the same time, without poverty, community doesn't seem very desirable. I mean, one of the advantages of wealth is so that you don't have to depend on other people. You can pull out into the suburbs. You can isolate at the most extreme. You can go and get a, a prepper bunker full of guns and food to, you know, have no dependence on anyone at all. And that's, that's where our culture uh, points towards. And so poverty makes community necessary, makes it uh, desirable. 
And so there's this, this mutual relationship between the two concepts. I don't think in most cases you can have one without the other. Uh, there's a few, you know, like a few people called to an extreme lifestyle. There's a, a woman I know who spends her life traveling the country with literally nothing, just begging her way uh, from one shrine to the next. She's walked from like South America all the way up to Canada on one trip. And, you know, it takes, takes nothing with her, not even any food or anything, no money. And just, she says she even makes it a practice not to carry water. So she has to stop and ask for water frequently because part of the mission, you know, is to meet people. But that's a very radical calling for a few, not something a family could do. So if a family is going to practice poverty, they'll need a community of support. Now, has um, Pope Francis, has his papacy or his message um, influenced you at all? I mean, I'm, some of what you're, what you're talking about in terms of, um, in terms of community, especially is, um, I, you know, his recent message, obviously of fraternity, and you've been doing this for a while, we're all in this together. Um, but other things that, that you're bringing up is, I know that early on in his papacy, he was, and I don't know, I don't know to what degree it was a stunt and to what degree it was, it was um, realistic, but how he would go through the, the parking lot at, at the Vatican and, you know, see what kind of cars the, uh, the priests were driving and uh, he would point them out and, you know, basically it's like, you know, you need a, you don't need much more than a dependable car if you're a priest. And even though, and it actually, it's funny because I know that some priest bloggers were even saying, well, you know, uh, diocesan priests don't take a vow of poverty. But like you said, we're all called to live out poverty in some way, um, you know, to to be free of attachment. Um Obviously, it, it manifests itself differently when we're in a family, but it's, you know, our, our excess belongs to the poor. It doesn't belong to um, and to the community. It doesn't belong to ourselves. But I was just wondering if, if Pope Francis's message has influenced you all, you at all in, in your, I guess, in your journey to find to discover more about intentional community. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, unfortunately, when when Francis came in, I think I'd been sucked a little bit into kind of the Catholic conservative world that was suspicious of him. Um, but then uh, Laudato Si came out. And of course, I heard, you know, from all all sides that this was, you know, a perfectly horrible encyclical. But a study group that I was part of was going to read it. So I gave it a shot. And I was actually like, wow, this is this is an amazing encyclical. <laughs> this is great. This is this is a real expansion of Catholic social teaching to cover our relationship to our common home. And so then I, um, starting with that experience, I came to have a much greater appreciation for Pope Francis. And then when Fratelli Tutti came out more recently, yes, I saw that as just a real statement of that gospel message of care and concern for others. And especially in, uh, helped to really, I think, influence my thinking on how a community can't just be concerned with those within. I mean, that's the de-temptation of a community. It has to be have an evangelizing, outward-looking um, aspect of care for everyone. Otherwise, you know, in search of, I think the temptation is that in search of unity, we can end up creating more disunity. We think that we can, we can come to think that we can create unity by creating disunity, by walling ourselves off of greater unity within. But as I've seen and experienced, all that happens in those settings is that the unity gets smaller and smaller within as more and more people are thrown out and the walls get smaller and smaller and tighter and tighter until you're down to yourself, your family, if you're lucky, in some kind of home church. And uh, so that Fratelli Tutti is, is a very valuable document for seeing what true human fraternity and true human community look like. And I think one of the the main things that he that he points out is, and especially because we live in such a pluralistic society, it's how we can, while not ignoring our differences or not ignoring our our, um, you know, where we disagree with others, where we can find common ground to work together for the common good. Um, and I think that's one thing. We can maybe when we get into the discussion of Vatican II, we can talk about it a little bit more. But it, you know, how do we, how are we, 
how do we mean maintain our faith as Christians and and the fullness and richness of our faith while living in communities that have people of different religions that um, you know where we can work together towards peace where we can still evangelize um, and I think I think those are those are some important questions and I, I especially liked how how he talked about um, just that idea of fraternity with someone completely different. I mean, you can't think of somebody, I mean, I guess they're both religious leaders, but, a but, a you know, a major Imam and, and the Catholic Pope having a sense of, of shared values together is, I mean, it's pretty remarkable. So. It is. Yeah. And, and I think that is important too. I really like in let us dream when he says that sometimes we've just got to camp together and wait for the sky to clear that, in some kind of unity has to come before we can resolve differences. I, I think, uh, you know, I would have never thought about it that way before reading it, but it makes a lot of sense. If we wait to have unity until we resolve all the differences, we won't resolve them because there won't be that underlying unity that would bring us together at all, that would make us want to resolve the differences. And if there's no will, it will never be resolved. And, and the key is not to ignore the differences or downplay them or push them, you know, Basically, yes, they're there. We we're aware of them. We're cognizant of them, and but in order to achieve our current goal or or this immediate need, we're going to hold that intention for now, um, and have mutual respect for one another. But proceed to you know help build a better world and and build up the kingdom. So, do you actually live in a, an intentional community now, or? Are you, I mean, you didn't really describe <laughs> describe that situation or what you're working towards. So, no, I'm uh, working towards building community in my local area. Um, because, again, of the dangers of community, I personally am more attracted to an organic development of community, okay. um, a gradual thickening of the community. But as I said, when I started the website project, I went into it feeling that you know, I didn't have the answers, just a lot of questions and that many other people seem to share those questions. And, and I guess I also did feel that like some very potentially dangerous answers were also circulating. Um, and one of the things I think that the project has actually challenged my initial assumption on is that I've been interviewing a lot of very intentional communities, very structured, and I'm actually, um, you know, realizing how that can be a very beautiful thing so long as you know, they're careful not to wall themselves off, so, so long as they're intentionally open. Um, but yeah, before the pandemic hit, I was starting to meet with some people in the local area who were, um, you know, thinking about some of the same ideas, trying to build a community uh, organically, especially because I don't see myself as like a community leader. I don't feel qualified for that. So all I felt I could do is sort of try to provide a sort of catalyst in my local area. And now as, as the pandemic is hopefully resolving, I'm looking forward to be able to go back to meeting with those people and again, continuing this conversation about what we can build locally. Building unity sounds like a great idea, <laughs> um, but it also is such a challenge. And that might be a good spot to kind of turn to your piece because it was an effort like to advance a sort of discussion of the reception of Vatican II and the arguments that are being made about it that are dividing the church right now. Um, so your post, we'll, we'll post a link um, for any viewers that they want to go read if they haven't yet. It was called Vatican II, A Failed Council, and you were responding to um, an article on crisis by Eric Sammons that was asking if we need to move beyond Vatican II now. Um, and so Sammons, the core of his argument was speculating that Vatican II had failed um, and that it's time for us to just move on. And some councils fail. And so we, the church just needs to leave them behind kind of in the past. Um, so for viewers who may not have read your piece yet, um, could you maybe summarize like the heart of your response to Salmon's? Yeah. And, you know, it isn't even so much a response, I think, to Salmon's himself, because the argument he's using is fairly common, that argument that, well, like, we only have to look around us. The church is in disarray. Obviously, Vatican II went wrong. Therefore, it's time to drop the thing. And you know, it's a he pretty would, common argument. Yeah, right. It is. And and he would and he wouldn't say there's nothing good in in the Vatican II documents. 
he would just say that by and large, like by their fruits, you know, it didn't work. And I'm, I think I made two major points in, in the article to counter that argument. One is that um, historically speaking, we're not really that far from the Vatican Council yet, that we don't really know what the ultimate fruits are yet. Um, and that I, I drew an analogy with the Council of Nicaea where, you know, it was called to settle the Arians. And this is very well laid out in uh, Rod Bennett's book, The Apostasy That Wasn't. I'd highly recommend that book. It really goes in depth on the, on the history, but it's very readable like a novel. Anyway, so it was called to settle the Arian question. And up until the council, you know, the Arian question wasn't a huge one. It was starting to, to stir things up. But in the end, when the vote came down at, at Nicaea, only 17 bishops initially were on the Arian side out of some 320. So it hadn't made much inroads yet. And of those 17, uh, most of them weren't really hardline Arians. They just had some sympathy for the idea. Well, shortly after the council, everything exploded. And within a few years, the Arians had captured almost every diocese in Christendom, uh, were being backed by the government. The few Orthodox bishops were mostly on the run, especially Athanasius. And it really looked like, as, as uh, one of the saints of the time said, the whole world looked around and found itself Arian. <laughs> and for, for the next 50 years, there was just chaos and confusion. The Arians were usually in control. There were various attempts to patch things up with like semi-Arian compromises uh, tons of new creeds were written and debated and rewritten. And, you know, it really looked like the Orthodox Catholic faith had been erased. But it eventually, through, mostly through the efforts of St. Athanasius and, and a few others, the, the truth prevailed. Another council was called, reiterated what Nicaea had said, and eventually the church pulled out of what was arguably the greatest crisis in its history. So it would be folly to say that Nicaea caused the problem. The problem was that people wouldn't accept what the council had said. So in one sense, you could say, well, Nicaea failed, but that meant the ones who opposed the council made it fail, <laughs> made it fail for 50 years. So we've got, so like, those were the two arguments that if a council does fail, it's because of a lack of reception uh, in, gen, gen, you know, if we look at church history and that we can't really tell yet whether this one will fail or not. But one thing that's certain to make it fail is if we won't, if we say, well, you know, like that didn't work, leave that. Um, so that actually the, the argument is, is in some senses circular. It assumes what it sets out to prove that Vatican II actually itself was the problem, uh, that it actually caused the problems in the church. I know this, this is a little beyond the article, but uh, uh, interacting with some responses to it from various people. One argument you can find is, is some uh, more traditionalist or reactionary figures, they'll argue that there were problems in the church before the council, but that if the problems were a fire, um, you know, the, the council was a bucket of gasoline. They reached for a bucket of water, got gasoline instead. And, mm. and I would say that the a better analogy would be uh, if you had a tree and it was, you know, full of termites and it rotted out from the inside, and then a tree surgeon came along and started working on it, suddenly all the rot is going to be apparent and all the termites are going to be scurrying everywhere. But it certainly didn't cause the rot. And as a matter of fact, like it may look catastrophic as branches start falling off, but cutting the rot out, solving the problem has to be done sooner or later. The collapse, in my view, was almost certainly going to happen. And Vatican II was the start of a big, messy process of starting to heal the problem. And... So, you know, that that I think is a better analogy. And it just seems more in line actually with tradition, you know, that this idea of, of just dropping or moving beyond a council, especially since we haven't had another council yet, and because the current pope is still on board with the council, doesn't seem like a traditional idea at all. Uh, it's actually not, it's reactionary, but not traditionalist by any sense of the word. Well, and it seems to me that this argument um, and I don't mean to implicate uh, Mr. Sammons personally, but I think that a lot of people who put forth this kind of argument, the fact is they disagree with certain aspects of Vatican II or or with the fruits of Vatican II. Um, they, they view it negatively. They don't see it as a failure. They see it as it was it taught some bad things and some bad things came out of it. And especially in, in some of their cases, the liturgy. Um, and I think because like what you're saying is 
the Arian council or the, the Nicene council taught the truth. And so, I mean, the fact that it failed didn't mean we had to roll back the whole thing and, and uh, you know, forget everything that was taught there. What was taught during the council was necessary and what we believe about councils as Catholics. Um, obviously the implementation can be ugly. It can be uh, halting. It can be, uh, you know, it, it can be a disaster. I know Pope Francis has brought up the point, but it, it predates his papacy is it takes a hundred years to uh, implement uh, an ecumenical council. And so we're, we're only about halfway through. Um, and it'll be interesting to see. I mean, obviously there are a lot of, a lot of things going on um, with the, um, I, I think that there's, you know, there was a rumor recently that uh, Samorum Pontificum, the 2007 motu proprio that was put out by uh, Pope Benedict, apparently there are rumors that Pope Francis is thinking about reversing it or you know changing it in some way and that's that's causing some panic but then again you look at some of these traditionalist communities that seem to have become hotbeds of of you know radical thinking or of uh you know even schismatic attitudes so i think it's a i don't know to me it, it doesn't seem that that was a very it, you know he was putting forth a what he was trying to put forth a logical argument but it didn't. Um, it didn't reveal his what maybe his true motives were, or what his what it, or. And I mean, it's not just him, but I, I've heard this argument many times, and it seems to me that it's like, well, yes, but you also don't like what the council said on top yeah, of thinking it didn't right. work. I, I, they're trying to tell us that there's no fruit. It bore no fruit, so it failed. It's like uh, it bore tons of fruit. You just hate the fruit. You don't think it tastes good, right? So, like, <laughs> look at uh, the Catholic Church's improved relations with the Jews and with other religions. Look at Fratelli Tutti in the Abu Dhabi statement. And there are other things we could point to as well, you know, reengaging with current thought in philosophy, in the sciences, and the the making a liturgy that people actually participate in now and that they actually are part of i mean there's tons of fruit uh the rcia strikes me as another fruit right uh, how many of us have come into the church myself included through the rcia that was created by the second vatican council and by dropping that really hostile attitude that made it pretty rare for anyone any protestant to want to come join the catholic church so it just seems to me like <laughs> didn't bear fruit it bore tons of fruit it's bearing yeah. fruit right now I think that's, I think, Adam, I think that's really true that in many cases, they, they, they would be arguing that it had failed if they didn't already want it to fail in, in a sense. Uh, I, you know, I can't, of course, speak for Sammons himself, but just in my experience with traditionalists. Uh, and, and that's a point, too, that really, of course, this is not, as I said, traditional to take this kind of attitude towards a pope or towards a council. One of the most interesting reactions I got from to my article um, it was retweeted by um, the people who run the Tradiste podcast. And they retweeted it and said, at Tradiste, we urge you to be the kind of traditionalist who will bring the great council of, of Vatican II into its full flower. And over at Tradiste, they spend a lot of time explaining that, you know, it's traditional to listen to the Pope. It's traditional <laughs> to, about that? to emphasize <laughs> social justice. And of course, but they, you know, they really are traditionalists, liturgically, doctrinally, mm. in many ways. And I have various disagreements with them that we've argued about from time to time. But going back to that Pope Francis quote about camping together in unity, that with unity, anything can be ironed out in time. Without unity, nothing, you know, anything good in a movement that breaks unity will ultimately wither. Whereas a united movement, even, even the defects will be eventually purified if they just stick with the unity no matter what. So, so that the, this attitude towards, you know, and that's the thing too, moving beyond Vatican II, uh, given that almost everyone who makes that argument also wants to move away from Pope Francis, it can't really be a move beyond. There'd have to be, you know, like, because we have moved beyond, like Sammons brings up like one of the Lateran councils, you know, they're not as relevant anymore. The church has moved on. Doesn't mean there wasn't anything good in them at the time. And, and that's something, too, that, you know, you have to read past documents in the light of present ones, because if you don't have a current church, God God works through the present moment to impact sure. us, not through the past. 
but that's, but that's we, the crucial problem, right? They do it yeah. the opposite. They read present documents through the past in a rejectionist way. Right. And and if you do that, if you do that, then ultimately it's just private interpretation, just with, mm. you know, not just with the Bible, more books. You've got, you know, Trent and the Bible, and you apply your interpretation then to current documents. But only a living church can tell you that you're wrong. You know, like the, the people from Trent or Vatican I are not going to show up and tell you you're wrong. And even now the people from Vatican II are not going to, but Pope Francis can tell you that you're wrong. <laughs> and that's and that's how, how else can God reach you through the church? It, that was actually one of the main things, um, I mean, you know, that made me feel comfortable with with pope francis like i mean like you like you i was in sort of tied into that conservative wing of the church but i i maybe even leaned even more traditionalist and more reactionary but then in the in the early 2010s i really started to look into the authority of the pope i think some of it had to do with the dialogue with the with the sspx and i realized that i had been reading it wrong you know <laughs> that the that really without the living magisterium you have you have chaos um i mean you look at traditionalists now and you look at people who were allies before and now they're they're criticizing each other they really um they have each of them has their own idea of what's orthodox and oh this is the line oh that guy's just he's just too crazy this is the stopping point this is where you know but it's um and i mean i think that there are there are people that I know, like speaking of intentional communities, I was thinking of uh, Larry Chap, who's a retired professor who now lives in um, who lives in a uh, on a Catholic worker farm out out in Scranton. Um, and he um, he has a very strong understanding of Vatican II, the ecclesiology of the church, and he personally doesn't it seems like he can't stand Pope Francis. You know, he just thinks that he just doesn't think he makes good potential decisions. He doesn't like his style. He doesn't like his diplomacy. But he has, when it comes to doctrine and when it comes to authority and when it comes to what is due to the Pope and what we can be assured of from the church, he and I are on complete same page. So we can argue about, you know, whether or not uh, Fratelli Tutti is a good document from, you know, morning until evening, but on, but on faith and morals, we share the same, the same faith. And, and that's, I think, one of the things like you're talking about traditionalists who do understand uh, the importance of the papacy and who do understand the significance of a, uh, of an ecumenical council. Um, I mean, the, the, those are the key things that we need to be united on. And I think that there's plenty of room for diversity in the church um, based on your style, based on your temperament, based on whether you're a, a bookworm or, or if you just really like music or you really, you know, there, there's a spot for everybody um, in the church. And, and it's not a one size fits all thing. And I think one of the things that Vatican II set into motion was a recognition of that. Uh, we talk about a lot about and I think you know, we'll be bringing up um, Massimo Borghese's new piece um, that uh, one of the things that I was thinking about was how these different movements that respond to different to different uh, to people's different interests and emotions. I was thinking about the, the growth of the church in Korea, the church in, in sub-Saharan Africa that has all been post-Vatican II. Yeah, there's a decline in the West, and that's something that we really do need to address. And I think that that's warped all of our perceptions on whether or not Vatican II was a, was a success. But, um, but there have been plenty of fruits. I think um, bringing up Bor Massimo Borghese's piece today is helpful um, because he has a he has a, a particular view of the council and like that we need to understand its genesis and that um, he, he's, he wrote that we can't attribute the present crisis of faith in the West to the council, nor can we think that it will be resolved by a Vatican III. And I believe Malcolm in our conversations outside of this, we, you, you brought up that, you know, there was already rot in the church prior to Vatican II, that it didn't, 
and my perception of it is always it didn't emerge in a vacuum like it, it emerged in a particular historical context so this desire to like rewind or maybe to go back and pretend the council didn't happen and we're just proceeding in a different direction without addressing the root that caused that was causing the decline that vatican ii was called to address is going to leave us in just as bad of a circumstance as we might think we're in now with the decline of faith or practice in in the Western context. Um, so do you think that like it's a difference in our understanding of history, like between maybe those of us who accept the council and think it's great or think that it's at least, you know, moving the church forward um, and and the more reactionary elements, is this like a, well, I, I reject the fruit of it, so I'm I'm gonna ignore the history, or is it is there a different reading of history? Or maybe I don't know if we want to talk about what the roots are of this like different reading of Vatican II and do they is it like an episode of church history that we need to just toss out? I mean I think part of it is yes, that there's kind of a romanticized idea that everything was fine. Now, of course, again, I don't think Eric Sammons thinks everything was fine in, in the 50s, but I know a lot of people who do. And of course, if you if you really think, and you know, like externally it did look pretty good, and then the collapse in the late 60s was pretty sudden. Um, but the way I see it is, or the way I came to see it, trying to resolve this for myself, is that, um, you know, like it was a good shell, it looked good, um, but it was structurally rotted out from the inside. It was it had become very weak, and I think that was because it had the church had in the developed world had become very comfortable, um, very um, assimilated, and the only thing left holding it together was kind of this shell of external practices. You know, being a Catholic was abstaining from meat on Friday and uh, wearing a scapular, carrying a rosary, and then Vatican II showed up and. Uh, the progressives jumped on it to uh, get rid of the external elements they didn't like, which the council did talk about external elements, but that wasn't the main focus. But so, and, and so when the shell got attacked, everything crumbled. And then from here on out, the progressives and the reactionaries settled down to argue about the shell, about how much shell to keep, what they're going to do with the shell. And and so the, the actual internal rot that need, to, you know, I started out just like I started out being, um, skeptical about Pope Francis, I started out being skeptical about the Second Vatican Council. And one of the authors who really helped me to see it in a different light is uh, Father Michael Gately uh, in his book, um, The One Thing is Three, a and, and really great book. And in it, he said the real message of Vatican II was the call to the laity. The call to the laity is shake off their duplicity of life, to really live out the gospel, and then to go and evangelize the world. And the reason the council had to do that calling was because for all the external observance, the, the Catholic spirit had grown cold. And that's very much in line with the gospel, too. In, in the gospels, it's pretty clear that external observances have no necessary correlation to uh, internal devotion. And so that call went out, but because everyone got busy arguing about the shell and arguing about why everything fell apart when they started working on the shell— uh, it didn't work. You know, like the, the councils become identified with the liturgical wars. And that's sad mm -hmm. because that's just one small aspect of the council. I mean, there's an entire social vision articulated in the council and a vision for the laity in their role, as you just said. And that also resonates with what Massimo Borghese wrote about. And then we have the translation up on our site. Um, he, he saw the hope in new ecclesial movements um, that maybe began just prior to the council in a lot of places in Europe, like I'm thinking of communion and liberation and Opus Dei and some of these ecclesi ecclesial movements that started before the council, but then engage both laity and priests and religious um, and move forward with vigor through the post-conciliar period. And he said, those are what gave life to the church, not traditionalist groups, not those who are seeking to maintain kind of the, the structure or the shell or, or just the visible practices that dominated prior to the council. Um, so that just struck me that we're kind of, <laughs> there's a lot of resonance um, in what you're saying and just kind of the broader conversation. You know, the inter an interesting thing, and I, I don't know if it's a pessimistic thing or not, but he, he kind of made it clear that they, 
they came they grew up in the in the 70s and 80s but by the 90s in a lot of ways they they had gone into decline um i mean i know a lot of like the founders of these various movements have canonization causes going on for them and actually they are a lot of the life in the church in places like italy and in uh spain and in the u and definitely in the u.s and canada um and various places in latin america you think of the the charismatic renewal as well but you know he mentioned their uh charismatic founders and in some cases the founders were saintly and in other other cases scandals cropped up i mean i you know being in the washington area and having been in the dc area my whole life um People talk about intentional communities, and the one that comes to mind all the time is Mother of God, which was um, in Gaithersburg, Maryland, that back in the 90s was actually um, Cardinal Hickey uh, had to have it investigated, and they they actually still exist, but they they cleaned house, they got rid of the old leadership. It's It's nowhere near the size that it used to be, but it was because the founders of that group were... Um, were, were corrupt and engaging in, in cult-like tactics. Um, Matt Capodacanal wrote about his uh, experiences in Omaha with the Intercessors of the Lamb, which was a, you know, a new movement. And um, they were shut down in the early 2010s by um, Archbishop Lucas because of, because of that. I mean, I think it's one of those things. I mean, it's not new to the church. Um, you know, we look at the, the statistics for the, um, the sexual um, abuse crisis. And, you know, that ran from the 40s until, I mean, the, the worst of it was the 40s through the 70s. So that, you know, most of that was before Vatican II. Mm-hmm. And I think it goes to what you're saying is that external shell might have looked pious, but ultimately it comes down to what's underneath. Um, one of the things that's kind of scaring me or that's that's scared me about recent years, this reactionaryism, this conspiracism that's cropped up in the church. And maybe maybe Adam hasn't talked much, so maybe he can kind of add to it. But I'm I'm a little bit worried about I mean, Vatican II gave so much freedom to the laity, but I don't think that the laity has necessarily been given the tools with which to exercise their, you know, their their um, baptismal priest, prophet, and king, their, their, their baptismal gifts, or to, you know, or to have, or to undertake that special vocation of lay people that's articulated so beautifully in um, the Second Vatican Council. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, Adam, or, you know, your observation <laughs> of, of human nature. I do. I uh, First of all, I agree with Malcolm saying that the call to the lady was like a huge central part of Vatican II. And at least in the theological world where I move, I don't think anyone would seriously disagree that it hasn't been fully implemented. And in fact, we're not even close. We're not even close. Um, clericalism did not collapse. Um, and it's hard to like, it's like, I don't really want to pin the blame on like any one person I think that John Paul II definitely encouraged the laity to do stuff. Um, And and I don't think he was trying to stop that in any way. Uh, And then Francis, you know, has continued that, uh, like with the new ministries, for instance, with the catechist um, and and making some of these ministries sort of permanent uh, for lay people trying or trying to at least. I mean, we're talking really about lay theologian. So, yeah. And that, of course, didn't exist until after the after the council, except in the Eastern churches. Um, I I almost feel the laity. Is this weird? I almost feel like the laity are sometimes to blame. Like we should blame ourselves um, because. People, there's the, the the clericalism of the laity, where the lady they don't want to do anything. They want to defer to father on everything all the time. You know, um, ask his permission, or that's his job. He's paid to do that, um, and and so it, it's like reinforcing. And and you'll even see this where a priest will try. Actually, a priest will try to get people. To, to do more initiatives on their own or even a very like anti-clerical priest will, will like 
maybe he doesn't want to be called Reverend Father all the time or whatever. And then it makes people mad and they like insist on giving him fancy titles and, and stuff, you know? Um, so there's been a lot of resistance to doing it. And I think the sort of vision of a church that's the people of God, which is at the center of Lumen Gentium, which is one of the main four documents, the church is not the clergy. The church is the people of God. We're just still really, really far away from, from that in actual practice. Um, and I and I don't think anyone has a silver bullet. Like, how do we make the church the people of God? You see it even in the language. And language is so telling. Um, you can't change reality by changing language. Language will only change if you change reality. People still say the church to mean the bishops or the clergy. Catholics say it, non-Catholics say it, journalists say it. It's everywhere. The idea that the church, blah, 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 when they're talking about a decision a bishop made, um, you know, or something like that. Or maybe they just mean the magisterium. They're talking about a papal encyclical or something. And it's like the magisterium is part of the church. The bishops are the leaders of the church, but the church is the people of God. And Vatican II makes that super, super clear. It is not up for debate. Um, Pope Francis has hit it hard as well. But what do we do? Like, how do we make that happen? Yes, there are clericalist priests who get in the way, but sometimes I think clericalist laity get in the way more, if that makes sense. And, you know, church in this country, I, well, I don't like to speak outside of America because I don't know. It's still often... Uh, the place to get your sacraments um, and, and the, uh, you know, what does church exist for to go get my sacrament? Um, so it's not really a community, you know, it's more like a repository of sacraments and the priest is the only guy who matters because he's the functionary there who dispenses the sacraments, you know, obviously you were talking about lay movements and how those were kind of our best, the best thing we had going in terms of actually truly changing things and re-envisioning church. Um, but maybe maybe it's true that those have not taken off to the degree. Because I think John Paul II put a lot of his, he put kind of a lot of emphasis on those. Is like, this is it. This is how we implement Vatican II. And yeah, maybe now there's some skepticism about, is that really working? Some of these communities have gone off the rails. Most Catholics aren't involved. And, 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 then, and then some of the founders of the communities turned out to be the very opposite of saints, too, which is the, kind of your worst case scenario. It seems like what we're saying is that we need to have, if, if we're going to renew the vision of Vatican II, we need to have a balanced understanding of it as, as something that happened in the church's history and that is yet to be fully implemented. Yeah, that's what I think. And we can't be either too like optimistic about it. Like it's great. Everything is fine. Everything is awesome. And that's our narrative around Vatican. It's the new springtime. Why don't you like it? Um, because that also <laughs> the reactionaries are reacting against something and they're reacting sure. against those who they feel demolished that shell of, of devotion and practice. Well, it was comfortable. But, it was yeah. familiar. It was well constructed and solid, at least on the outside. It felt right? like, and yeah. those forms uh, worked to, to the extent that they did work, you know. Mm -hmm. And to and and here the council's coming in and and trying to say like those are just external forms. The charisma is what matters. The proclamation of Jesus Christ risen is what matters. The Catholic Church isn't supposed to be just like some institution with political power in society where we all wear nice suits on Sunday, but it's actually <laughs> supposed to be spreading the gospel. Um, and, and maybe that had, you know, some people took that in a kind of hippie sort of way back in the 60s and 70s. You know, I think of Godspell and all that. But, um, you know, that's what it's all about is the gospel. So was Godspell uh, the fruit of Vatican II? It may be so. I mean, it's to me, Godspell is the stereotype. Godspell yeah. is the perfect image of the um, liberal uh, Christianity. And, and honestly, I think there's there's a lot of good in that in that play. But of course, it's it's missing the resurrection of Jesus at the end, which is obviously why it works so perfectly as an image of this of this liberal Christianity that is not a, that is not Vatican II actually, and that is not authentic. I think one of the things that that kind of makes 
things a little bit more difficult, at least maybe from my perspective, in, in trying to see the church in, with that vision of lay, lay people taking charge, lay leadership, is, you know, as, as I've grown in my faith, I've grown in maybe my in my love and devotion for the sacraments. I mean, I love going to confession. I love mass. I love adoration. Um, and you can't really do those things unless you've got a priest around, yeah. right? I mean, that's one of the things that I was, the, the Amazon Synod was addressing was sort of, well, these, you know, these people, a lot of them don't see uh, a priest for, you know, every, they only see a priest every six months or every, you know, once every two years. Um, and and without the priest, they can't have access to to the sacraments. Um, I mean, I know dealing with um, you know everything that that went that went on with my sister in the last week, having a brother who was a priest, you know, it made a load of difference. I mean, he he was first of all, we were only allowed to have one visitor at a time for a seven week seven day chunk. So my aunt was the one designated visitor that. Um, my sister could see for the first seven days and then my sister for the next seven days. And then it was going to be me. Um, but my brother, you know, he had his collar. He could just walk right in, you know. So we we kind of got an extra, um, you know, an extra visitor out of that um, in terms of um, the funeral. You know, it was sort of um, I mean, my sister was a practicing Catholic, but she kind of went to this parish and that parish, but saying and, you know, saying at this parish and. Um, but because he was a priest, he could make these phone calls and get things done. And it's like, I don't, I mean, it's like, how do, is that something we, I mean, now granted having a personal priest is, is kind of a luxury, but, um, <laughs> or is it, am I, am I, am I too clericalized because of that? You know, um, I have, you know, he's my little brother, so I can boss him around about what he should be <laughs> preaching about next week. And that, that, well, it know. may give you a bit of a different perspective on priesthood. I would, I would think. Well, I think it, I think it does because it he priests are very human yeah. to me, and that's I also good. kind of. You, that's part of yeah. the problem is people don't see priests as human, right? That's a huge part of the problem. Well, it, you know, it's kind of funny because I I went on a um, on a men's retreat shortly after his ordination and he was assigned to a parish where that had a very clericalized vision of the priesthood and um and a lot of parishioners of his were on this retreat and so they were like oh you're father lewis's brother oh he's such a holy priest he's such a you know and here you know it's like my kid brother who i used to like share a, you know share a bunk bed with who would snore and and you know stay, he would t take too long in the bathroom in the morning and and so it's like i was like cracking like little brother jokes and stuff like that and i mean granted i'm an irreverent person they i may have gone i may have crossed line. one of them went gone too back, far with your jokes mike one of, yes. i know i wouldn't do that but one of them actually <laughs> went back to him and like tattled on me for saying bad <laughs> things about him I was just playing around. I wasn't like, you know, I did say he was a horrible. Am I gone? Am I frozen? It was a little Hello? weird there for a second. <laughs> it was kind of weird. You're, you're here. Yeah, my signal is actually going in and out. And and I actually, I've had, thank goodness for the mute button, because I've had a four and a six-year-old girl, like, shouting behind that door behind me. They've been, like, banging <laughs> okay. on it, asking we for stuff heard. this whole time. So um no because of the mute button um but yeah i don't I, I mean it's kind of a i think that to some degree we want to demystify the priesthood you know um i mean obviously a priest is priests are essential in our church yeah. we need good pastors and that was one of the things that actually it was a little controversial for a for a post vatican II, uh you know a pro vatican II article um, I, I just want to read this line from, from Massimo's article. Um, churches become empty when pastors, rather than being pastors, are bureaucrats, functionaries, employees. The problem in the ordinary church is our great lack of pastors, of people who love Christ and share the lives of those who are entrusted to them. So, um, and, and then he goes on to say that secularization is just an excuse um, 
a lot of it is because, and granted, I mean, priests now are, are overwhelmed. You know, you've got one priest handling two parishes and they're, you know, 20 miles apart and they're both, and they're going bankrupt. Um, so a lot of times they're forced to become functionaries. I know bishops in a lot of cases, that's definitely the case where they've got to go, they've got to crisscross, you know, across a state to go to, uh, to do confirmations, you know, four confirmations in a weekend or something like that. Um, but, and, and I think sometimes, you know, without a good prayer life and without, um, and, and just without support of the laity, I think burnout is a real possibility. Um, but really I think a, a good pastor can, and I mean, I hate to place the burden on them, but a a good pastor could really can really invigorate the laity. Um, one who really knows how to inspire the laity to take greater ownership of their role in the church. But, you know, I don't even know, like I was saying about the laity, I don't know that we all know how that should look or, or, or how right. to get the ball rolling. I don't think we do. I mean, we're talking about community, right? Like, like Malcolm was talking about, it's, it's all about community. The com the church is the communion, right? And so it's it's centered around the mass, obviously, um, but it doesn't stop there, right? You're sent forth. And I think a lot of churches, we don't have much of a community, you know? Um, and I feel like it's part of modern life, right? It's not like this is a unique problem that only Catholics have, right? This is just a, a fundamental existential crisis of modernity that COVID has made even worse. And it'll be interesting mm -hmm. to see how we respond post COVID. Cause I don't think anyone knows actually we'll see. Um, no one knows how to build the community. I don't know, know how, right. What people do instead is they go online and they meet maybe other Catholics that way. And then all the problems of the internet come in all the toxicity there of anonymity and blah, blah, blah. Um, and, and that's, that's just exacerbating a problem, our pre-existing problems. Well, we have someone here who's been studying how to build community. <laughs> Silver bullet answer. Including from other Christian communities. Yeah. You know, that's, I mean, that is the, the million dollar question there, right? And, I, you know, I don't know. I do think that uh, as I've been interviewing community members, it, one of the things they've consistently said is that, you, you have to focus it on Christ, that the people starting out to build a community can't be aiming at building community. Community has to be a kind of a byproduct almost of a love of Christ and Christ. Uh, I was just interviewing the Bruderhof communities, which are Anabaptist communities, yeah. uh, probably some of the most famous communities in the Christian world. And he said, if you are coming into this because you want an alternative lifestyle, because you want community, because of anything else but Christ, you'll fail. It has to be because Christ calls you to live in community with your brothers and sisters and calls you to share life with them. And, and that seems to be what could be distilled from most of the interviews I've been doing with uh, community members and leaders. So you don't just study Catholic intentional communities. It's all kinds of Christian or this was just a, an exception or... Uh, yeah, I, I wanted to have the, I mean, the, the, all the people actually directly involved with the website are Catholic, and we're definitely trying to present a very Catholic, a faithfully Catholic point of view. But I am trying to interview people from a range of perspectives, because I really think that some other Christian communities have a perspective, especially on this this topic of community that could be valuable, especially the in this case, the Anabaptist uh, communities. In, in one sense, they're the Christian experts on community. Um, yeah. but, but others as well. So I, I wanted, you know, I, I want anyone to feel free to join the conversation and any Christian to feel free to participate in it. Yeah. Now, when you mentioned the Anabaptists, because we actually, um, Paul Fahey and Pedro Gabriel and I are, are friends with a, a, a friend of the site who is a Hutterite in, um, you know, in, in Western Canada somewhere, um, who lives in community. Um, and you know, they're, they're a branch of the Anabaptists somewhere, not there. They're like, we're not, uh, we're not Amish and we're not Mennonite, we're Hutterites. It's like, okay. But, um, and I've done a little bit of study of their group, but I mean, yeah, I think that that's, a, um, 
there there are a lot of things that I think they do that they do get right. People also talk about Mormons, um, you know, in terms of the, the wards and the, um, you know, the local community. Um, I know that, you know, I have friends that are from like Oklahoma and like Southern Baptist, Southern Baptist part of the world. And that's one of the things that they're, you know, their churches, it's all about who has the best youth groups, who has the best, uh, you know, who who helps the expectant mothers the the most? Who helps the you know wh- what group has or which church can basically rise to the need of the people or you know help the people in need the most uh, the best and the and in the most uh, you know in the most Christian way and I, and that's something that is almost I mean at least in in this part of the U.S. but that's you know the Catholic communities that do that are the rarity that I've found. Um, you know, most, most Catholic churches, and I know like in the Rust Belt and, and in some, you know, blue collar areas, it's, you know, back your car in so that, and then, you know, basically so that once the, uh, so that you can bolt out of there right after communion seems to be the, you know, grab your bulletin. (laughs) (laughs) But what you were saying, Malcolm, about, you know, really experiencing or, or focusing your your community life around the relationship with Christ. Um, that reminds me so much of how Pope Francis talks about encounter and how, you know, it's our encounter with others is rooted in first encountering Christ. And so our community needs to be formed really around that. And that's really where the unity is going to subsist is in Christ who is the root for all of us. So I don't just kind of wrap it all up. Um, what are some of the signs of, like renewal or of hope that you have seen, you know, we talked a little bit about Pope Francis and um, about just all the interviews you've done and, and maybe your conversations with other Catholics, but what are some of the, the biggest signs of hope that you see in, in maybe carrying out the Vatican, the second Vatican council's vision of renewal and just moving forward in 2021 in this very divided, separated time. I guess I would just say that, yeah, I do think Pope Francis's pontificate is is very hopeful. And also I do, you know, like obviously the division is really uh, sad. It, it's one of the most depressing signs. But at the same time, how many lay Catholics are out there who are really interested in their faith? Mm-hmm. Even if some sometimes it's channeled wrongly into divisions and internet wars, mm-hmm. that there are a lot of, you know, like here we are at where Peter is, definitely a hopeful sign, I think. And, you know, something like this, it's not that it would have been impossible before the council, but uh, I think that the, the council really helped to bring that up. And and the, the final thing is actually uh, that the council, after the council, there was a large increase in the popularity of Eucharistic adoration, even something that, you know, having laity uh, 24 hours a day uh, during the Blessed Sacrament is not something that was common before the council. So in, in various ways, the laity, I think, did start trying to take on a more active role. But like Adam was saying, uh, you know, it's been it's been kind of fumbling. Uh, we probably are not there yet. We do need to we really do need to admit that there is all the, the darker side, that the implementation has not been a, been a full success. But at the same time, I do think there are those signs of hope if we look around to find them. Yeah, I like that you brought up just like what we're doing right here, because that seems really salient. We have priests who write for where Peter is, but we weren't created by a priest. We weren't, we're not run by priests. We didn't seek approval from priests, nor do we need to. We are not required to. We are empowered to do this by our baptism. And, you know, I think we've had some good success in some kind of community here, even virtual community during the pandemic through Zoom and whatnot. Um, and so, yeah, they're, you know, the lady are doing more. And I like how even you, even the negativity you said, because kind of a positive side to it of, well, people are interested. I mean, people are they could there. channel that energy into the right. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, they're using it to fight. Um, but, um, that, yeah, it, if we could redirect that. I just want to say, because we do have some priests that contribute for us. And, uh, this week, finally, finally. We had our first religious sister right for yes, us. So, we did, Sister Karina. Um, sister Karina from England. 
So yes. we're an international effort. And uh, <laughs> hey, we were always international with Canada. We have been in Portugal. We started Portugal. out. Yes, with... you're right. You know, from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, I think that wraps up our conversation for tonight. Um, all the links to what we talked about should be in the like box underneath wherever you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook or maybe on Twitter. Um, we should be back next week, same time, same place. If you like what we do here at Where Peter Is, we invite you to go become a patron on Patreon and make sure that you're subscribed wherever you're watching or listening to this in the future so that you get all of the episodes of Where Peter Is Live and the new Sunday show, Critical Catholic with David Lafferty in your podcast feed. But thanks for joining us tonight and we'll see you all later. Bye. 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 Excellent.